Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Man, it's hard to do any sort of intro when we continually worship like that in music. <laughs> How do you transition from that? Take my shoes off, maybe. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> my name is Dan Spina. I'm one of the pastors on staff here with, uh, with our church. It's great to be able to be here and share God's word with you this morning. Um, it's, uh, we're going to continue in our John series. If you're, if you're joining us new, we're, we're in the book of John. We're going to be here for a couple of weeks. Um, so you have plenty of time to get caught up. Um, so it's great. <clears throat> I had a seminary professor that told me that the quicker you fall behind, the, the more time you have to get caught up. So there you go. We have, to, you have time to get caught up. Um, I, I have to confess, I, I like new stuff. Um, these sneakers, brand new, just got them. Uh, and they were supposed to come on Monday, but the post office said that we were on the, on, you know, you could track the package. So it was at the post office on, went on Friday. I'm like, Heather came in my sneakers, and I'm like, Heather, where's my sneakers? So I, I literally got in my car and drove to the post office, showed them the tracking, and I'm like, it, clearly, it says it's here somewhere. To which the guy informed me, no, it hasn't been scanned in. But then it came on Saturday, so I had to wait a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I love new stuff. I never knew this. Stephanie, my wife, she's the one that told me. And she's like, you, you like new stuff. And I was like, yeah, you're right, I do. Um, and it's very freeing to, to, under, to like, when you learn things about yourself, it's so freeing. Uh, thrifting, does anyone like thrift shops? Yeah, I mean, I, it's like if you're a believer, you have to like, I hate thrift shops. <laughs> I hate them. Why? Well, for two reasons. One, they're dirty. I have, like, germophobia inside of me. And the stuff isn't new. <laughs> I can count on my hand. I literally, I can think of three examples of all the years I've been at a thrift shop of things that I have purchased. Um, three. I'll say four in case there's an error, but I can actually think of three things that I purchased. And I'll never forget, I think we went into one time, and Stephanie challenged me. She's like, I challenge you to buy something today. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this hurts. So I'm looking through all the racks, and guess what I found? A T-shirt with tags on it. <laughs> this T-shirt was new. I'm like, I could do that. So I proudly bought this T-shirt and um, still have it to this day. Yeah, I, I took the step and, and purchased something. Um, I always have this conundrum, too, because I don't like hand sanitizer. This is a little side. And, like, you're in this, like, you're in the thrift shop. You're like, man, I just want to go home and shower. It feels so dirty. It's just me. I know. I have lots of issues. You should pray for my wife. Um, and they give you, like, hand sanitizer. And, like, I hate hand sanitizer. So I'm, like, stuck with this conundrum of, like, I really want to shower. And my only option is this foaming stuff that smells nasty. And, like, it's, like, loaded with alcohol. I'm convinced doesn't do anything, yet my doctor keeps using it, and I get nervous every time he touches me. I'm like, please. I swear, none of this is in the notes. Chris, let's not use this one, buddy. Uh, let's go with uh, Sermon 2. Wow. Sorry about that. That felt good. I'm not going to lie. If you're a doctor, I know we have lots of doctors. I'm sorry. Um, I love you all. I'm thankful for your work and your ministry. Um, but I'm excited because in the book of John, we see that there's some new stuff for us. Uh, so that's why I'm excited that I get to do the book, of, uh, in the book of John, chapter 2 specifically. Um, there's some new stuff that we have that Jesus has for us. Um, in, in John chapter 2, we're going to see that there's three, there's like these three stories um, for all the 
kind of people under 30. They're like TED-style talks. Um, I call them vignettes. There's like three little vignettes in, in the whole of, of John 2. And through them all, we're going to see that Jesus in his ministry offers us something new. With, 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 each, with each one, we're going to see that there's something new. But here's the thing. Um, in order to truly embrace the newness that Jesus offers, and the newness that we just sang about, <laughs> in order to truly embrace the newness that Jesus offers, we first have to let go of the old. We first have to let go of the old. That's what we're going to see in these stories. These are some really rich stories. Um, some of them might be familiar to you, uh, but we really, when we press in, we see that there's more going on. There's more going on there, and we see that there is some new stuff for G- that Jesus has to offer us. In order to truly embrace it, though, we have to learn to let go of the old. So let me pray for our time here, and we're going we're gonna to jump right in. Lord, I, I thank you. I thank you that we get to just stand as a church family and sing and declare your word. It's so refreshing for the soul. It's so refreshing. And Father, I know that some of us have come here from hurried mornings. Some of us have just have lots of things on our mind. We're thinking about this afternoon. There's things that we're facing that's, that's constantly in front of us. I ask now, Lord, in your grace, may you just help us to set that aside and help us to hear what you want us to hear, to see what you want us to see, to receive what you want us to receive. And I ask, Lord, that you would use me as your vessel, that you would use me to speak your word for your glory and for your glory only. Uh, May you be magnified in our lives. And we ask this in your name, amen. So our time this morning, really, really simple. Three stories we're gonna look at, and then we're gonna look at two questions kind of coming out of the stories. Um, so let's, let's take a look at these three vignettes. So John 2, we're going to do, do them in section here. So we'll have the scripture for you up on the screen. Um, open up your Bible, John 2. If you don't have a Bible and you want one, we'd love to give you one. We have them at our Welcome Center. Please take it. It's good to have the word in your hand. Um, so we're going to go John 2, verses 1 through 12 uh, is our first story for us. Uh, the wedding at Cana, right? <clears throat> All right, John 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with, with his disciples. When the, wine ran, went out, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servant, do whatever he tells you. Now there are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, it did not know where it came from. Although the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves a good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. Now, this story, I'm sure, for some of you that have read, are familiar with the Bible, you're probably familiar with this story. Um, it seems really simple at first when you, when you go through it, um, but often with the case with, with Scripture, we're, we're really invited to just slow down just a little bit and press in. Um, and when we do that, we see that there, there's actually a lot of stuff going on inside this, just this small, this initial story here. 
Um, so let me just give you some of the, the background, the contextual background, some of it's cultural, just to help us see what's happening here. Um, first, we see that John said this on the third day. So John's clearly connecting this with what's come in John chapter one. So like this, you see in John one's like that day, the next day, the next day, the next day, on the third day. So John is like looping these all together, linking the timing of these events together. So we can see that this is happening pretty early in Jesus' ministry. Um, this person is most likely a relative of Jesus. I mean, his mother went, his brothers went, Jesus, his disciples. So, so whoever's in this wedding, most likely it's the groom, um, is some sort of relative. At the very least, it's a close friend of the family. Um, and, they're, and, and they're at the wedding because of that reason. Um, which then helps us understand why Mary is concerned with the wine, right? Because this is a friend, this is a family member. She, she has some level of concern. Now, what you need to understand, though, is that she's not just concerned because there's no wine, right? She's concerned because there's actually some big things happening here. So wedding feasts at this time would last a week, like a whole week. All the fathers with daughters in the room just went, oh, my gosh. Um, a whole week, yeah. Uh, and that's so the guests that came would have this expectation that they would be provided for for the entire week. And the groom was responsible for providing the, the wine. Um, so there's, there's, when the wine runs out, there's some concern. Some commentators would s- said that actually there could be legal action, that the bride's family, who's traveled from afar to come for this feast, could potentially take legal action against the groom for running out of supplies. In a shame-based culture, at the very least we could say this, in a shame-based culture, this groom would have been facing all kinds of shame. Right? He's supposed to be hosting this party and, and, the, and the wine runs out. That's, that's shameful. Um, and the other thing we can note too is that the fact that he ran out of wine most likely signifies to us that he was, he was probably poor. Uh, poorer. <laughs> he couldn't afford the, the money. He didn't have the money for the, for the food, for the wine, for the whole entire week. So Mary sees this. This is a friend. This is a family member who's facing these things. And she calls on her son to act. Now here too, we have to pause. Um, at this time, what we, what we can probably guess is that Joseph has passed away. Um, so Jesus is the oldest son in this family. He has brothers and sisters. The text tells us that. He has brothers and sisters. Um, and he's the oldest son. And the oldest son is responsible for caring for the family. So time and time again, Jesus the carpenter has been caring for his family. So, so mom comes and says, Jesus, listen, you're very resourceful. Every time we have a problem in our family, you seem to solve it. Here we have another problem, the wines ran out. Now Jesus' rebuke kind of goes in two different directions. Um, Jesus, first he says, this is not my problem to deal with, woman. Um, now when we read that, there's, you know, we kind of bristle at it. It, it, is, um, it would be a culturally sensitive thing for him to say. It would have been okay. Um, now it wasn't like the strong rebuke, like what's wrong with you, woman? <laughs> um, but it wasn't this gentle thing either. It was somewhere in the middle. He's like, this isn't my problem, is what he's saying. But then he pivots uh, with the second part of his sentence, and he says, my hour has not yet come. So what we start to see here in Jesus' reply is that he's starting to separate himself. He's, I'm no longer just your son, mom. I came to do something for my father, my heavenly father. My eyes are now fixed on his will, and my hour has not yet come. So then what happens next in our story, we see we have the miracle. Um, the servants listen to Jesus. They fill, the, they fill these jars to the brim, it says. These jars were full. And then the master of the ceremony, he takes just, just a taste, right? That's what it said. He tasted the wine, and he is blown away 
by the generosity of this groom. He's blown away by the abundance. This stuff tastes amazing. Normally, the best stuff is served first, and then you serve the watered-down stuff, the cheap stuff last, but not him. Not in this case. The master's ceremony is like, wow, this is exceedingly generous of you. And notice who actually witnesses the miracle, right? We know that the servants are aware of who turned the water into wine, but it's the disciples. It's the disciples who have the eyes of faith to whom Jesus manifests his glory. His glory was manifest. It was the disciples who were able to actually see it. So this, this miracle, this, this first miracle, as John, first sign, John tells us, was seen by only a few people. And if you connect John 1 with this, we're talking maybe five of his disciples. We don't know when the rest of the disciples were called, but there's only like four or five right now. So a very small crew that actually got to see this and got to understand this. So this story seems really straightforward, but unless we really slow down, we, we miss some of this. And beyond the cultural background, of course, there are some deep theological things happening here. John says that this is his first sign. Um, now in the book of John, John uses the word sign. He doesn't use the word miracle. He, he often refers to things as signs. Um, the two are one. Um, in this case, this is how John's way of highlighting a miracle. Um, so then that really begs us to ask, well, what is a sign? <laughs> what is a miracle? <clears throat> and here I'm going to lean on a commentator who said, they are significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. So in the story, it just seems like there's no wine. Yay, now there's wine, right? Like, provided. But there's something deeper happening here. The signs point beyond the action. They point beyond what we first see. We have to push in, and there's something deeper. So when we come across this sign, we have to ask, what's the deeper, or any sign, what's the deeper reality that Jesus is trying to show us with this sign? That's what the text asks us to ask, tells us to ask. What's the deeper reality? There's something transcendent happening here. What is it? Well, let's step back then. So what does John tells us that the jars that they were they were there they were used for the Jewish rites of purification, right? There were these jars of water that were used for purification. The problem though is that in the old system, the old understanding, the old Jewish way, the old law, is that you're never completely purified. You have to come back time and time again. You have to offer sacrifices over and over again, time and time again. You have to rewash with this water. So what does Jesus do? What does he do then? He takes his old understanding and he utterly transforms it, symbolically. Because remember, his time has not yet come. His hour is not here. But he starts pointing, starts, us, starts pointing us to something new, something different. He takes his legalistic water that's bound up with all the Jewish rites and ceremony and sacrifices and he transformed it into this grace-filled wine. Wine throughout the whole New Testament is connected with the new covenant. It's connected with the blood of Jesus in communion, right? He says, here's the, this cup when we have him at the, at the Last Supper. It's the amazing display of grace. It's the new life that Jesus is ushering in. It's, it's the wine of the gospel message. It's the new messianic age is at hand. And not just for those in the future, but for, for here and now in this story, for this groom, for the, for the people that have interacted with this wine, the, the master of the ceremony just took a taste of this grace, and he was like, wow. 
this is exceedingly abundant. This is overwhelmingly generous. This grace is amazing. And we see this wine, this grace, just does, it does three things for the groom. I highlighted them at the beginning, right? Though he was poor, he's now rich. Think of all that wine that he had for the rest of the ceremony. Though he was about to be shamed, I mean, he was about to face shame. They ran out of wine. Jesus covers his shame with this new wine. And though he's about to face litigation, though he's about to have lawsuits, so he would not stand up to the law, what the law demands, Jesus covers this legal requirement and he, he, satisfi- he satisfies it. This is the newness that Jesus offers. It's the gospel-centered grace that he is setting in motion here. His eyes are transfixed on what his father, his heavenly father, has called him to do. His hour has not yet come, but he lets us have a taste of the filled to the brim grace that Jesus offers us. And what's true for the groom, it's true for us as well, right? We're, all, we're poor, and Jesus makes us rich. We have shame for our sins, and Jesus covers that shame. We all fall victim to the standards of the law, all of us. We don't, we don't measure up to the law. But Jesus satisfies the standards of the law for us. Jesus acts, and we receive grace. The old law has no power over us. Our shame is covered, and though we are poor, we receive the riches that only the gospel can provide. I love new stuff, <laughs> right? Man, this is amazing. That's our first story. That's our first vignette. Our second vignette is, is this temple cleansing. And we see this in John chapter 2, 13 through 22. And we're going to read through that now as well. And starting in verse 13, the pastor of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And that they're, they're recalling Psalm 69 there. Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So again, this is another story we have in John, and there's more going on in this one as well. Um, now, for some of you, you might recall that the other gospels have a cleanse, Jesus cleansing the temple towards the end of their gospel narratives. John has it up front. Um, the commentators have, have come together and have agreed that there's, there's most likely two times that Jesus has gone into the temple and cleansed the temple. Um, the fact that he did it here and there wasn't like a major uprising, there wasn't a major outcry, right? the, the people actually left, right? I mean, it's just Jesus and he's like, get out of here and they, they left. Um, so clearly, like, this wasn't like a, a major, major issue for the Jews at this time. 
Um, the vendors here make sense as well. So remember, it's the Passover, and people are coming from all over the place to come to the temple, um, and they don't have their animals with them. So for convenience, they can actually buy an animal. There's, they can buy popcorn at the game. Um, they can buy animals at the temple, and they could sacrifice these animals. They could buy the sheep or the oxen, whatever they need. And the money changers, same thing. Remember, these people are coming from all over. They have all kinds of currencies. So in order to make their transactions, they have to exchange their money. So they need a place. So the temple very conveniently set up these money-changing tables. So you can exchange your money. You can buy the animal that you want, and you can go and, and celebrate the Passover. Now, when Jesus enters, he sees this, and he realizes that instead of seeing solemn worship, he sees a circus. It's like, what? is going on and he kicks everyone out and they leave but then but then power and control show up <laughs> the jewish leaders they they don't like what they see we see what do they do they, they go to him they demand a sign by what sign do you do these things now this is a bit ironic at least to me it's very ironic you just had jesus go into the temple and overturn the temple <laughs> Isn't that a sign right there? <laughs> that should be, should be, his disciples were able to link it to, to Psalm 69, but these Jewish leaders were not. They missed a sign. And instead they want further proof from Jesus. Furthermore, John 1, 14, it describes Jesus as the word that took on flesh. That word there is actually tabernacle. So we could say he ta Jesus tabernacled with us. <laughs> so this tabernacle now is talking to the Jewish leaders and he says, destroy this temple, referring to himself and I will raise it up again in three days. You see, while people have come to this physical temple time and time again, they have to, time and time again, Jesus is pointing them to something new. Destroy this temple. Destroy this new temple. And I, Jesus, I will raise it up in three days. And therefore, we don't need to keep coming back to the temple anymore. There's a new temple and it's Jesus. His hour has not yet come, but when it does, once it's destroyed, once Jesus, once the new temple is destroyed, once Jesus is killed, once he's, once he's crucified, he's raised back up again, all sins are forgiven forever. We don't need the old temple sacrifices anymore. Jesus offers us a new temple, and that's what we see in the story. There's something new, a new temple. I love it. In the third vignette, uh, we have this group of believers. I put them in quotes. These, these group of believers. Um, believers. This, just really short, a couple of verses here, 23 through 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem, so it's still time frame, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself, himself knew what was in a man. This is the shortest of, the, of our stories here this morning, and it, and it is quite simple, quite really easy understanding. The people saw the signs that Jesus did and believed in him because of the signs. But Jesus knew that their faith was not sincere. He knew that their hearts were not right. He knew that their faith was only surface level. They didn't have that heart-transforming faith, so he did not entrust himself to them. Here we see that Jesus is after a new heart connected with true faith. And this is gonna to lead to what we talk about next week, John chapter three. Um, so we won't spend a lot of time talking here. But what I can say is that these believers had this inch deep faith response. They felt good 
right? They felt good with what they saw. Look at these signs. Man, the minute the signs stop, though, what happens? Their faith disappears. And Jesus knew that. That's not what he's after. Jesus longs for a new heart connected with, with true faith. And that's, the, that's our text. That's John 2. That's the newness that Jesus offers. Three stories that point us to three new things. A new messianic age wrapped up with grace. The new temple, that's Jesus' body. And a new heart connected with sincere faith. So then, we're left with two questions. We're left with two questions in our understanding here. As we, as we work through the book of John... As we read through John, John invites us in, and he almost, he almost demands of us as we read this, that we ask ourselves along the way, what does this passage tell us about Jesus? What does John chapter 2 then tell us about Jesus? And there's two very important things that we see in this text that I want to highlight for us. The first is that Jesus is human. Just receive that. Jesus is a man. He's human. The interchange with his mother helps us see that. Later we see he's leaving with his brothers and sisters. He, he's a man. His mom leans on him as his eldest son. Right? There, there's just ex- familial exchange. We are reminded that Jesus is a human. And that's really important for us. The humanity of Jesus invites us into the story with him in a more intimate way. Now, if you, if you think Jesus is like just some superhero, like Batman or, or, or maybe Superman or any type of superhero, he, he's not. You, you can't touch them. They're not real. But Jesus, you can because he's a man. He took on flesh. He is God's word incarnate in the flesh. Now, is there something special about Jesus? Absolutely. Is he fully God? 100% fully God. Does he have command of the armies of heaven? Oh, man, you better believe he does. You better believe that he does. Did he create all things, including you? Did he create all things? Yes, he did. Jesus did that. But don't rush past his humanity. Don't rush past his humanness. When you read through the Gospels with this constant reminder that Jesus is human, you'll start to have a deeper understanding of Jesus. You'll start to enter into a deeper faith with him. Most certainly, you'll have a deeper relationship with him. He becomes more tangible, becomes a little more accessible for us. You could, you could have touched Jesus. He was sweaty when he worked. He was a carpenter that built stuff. He was a good carpenter, I bet, too. He had a family. He was a son and a brother. He had hair. He walked places. He laughed. He cried. He slept. He had flesh. He ate. He drank. He wore clothes. He wore shoes. You could have put your arm around him. He would have put his arm around you and hugged you. He is 100% fully man. When we come to our text next week with Nicodemus, keep that in mind. He's going to be sitting there talking. It's two men sitting there having an intimate conversation. Like, just have that in your head as we're in John 3 next week. That's just two guys talking. His humanity is important for us for a whole number of reasons. We could, oh man, there's books written on the humanity of Jesus. Let me give you just a few. First, he models godly living for us. So, as a man, he models godly living so then we can follow him because he's a man. We see what he does, and we're called in to follow him. He's our mediator between God and man. He's our mediator. He's able to be our substitute sacrifice. 
Without Jesus' humanity and divinity, we're in a lot of trouble, friends. He wouldn't be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Our death sentence leading to hell would still be hounding us. But through faith in Jesus, the man and God, you don't have to worry about that anymore. He pays the price for us. And in his humanity, we can relate to him. He's one of us. He understands you. He's been through what you're going through. He's, he's gone through all things, scripture tells us. He can relate to you. The second thing to see is in our text here is that Jesus is focused on doing the will of his father. He's got his eyes just laser focused on that. Jesus and God the father are inseparable. In fact, they're one. And he has his eyes set on what he came to earth to do. Not his will, not Jesus' will, but his father's will. Jesus is ready to surrender his will to fulfill the will of his father. He has his eyes set on redeeming humanity, restoring what was broken, drawing people to him so that they may have an everlasting life and right relationship with the father. Those are the two things, at least two things that we can see about Jesus that John invites us to ask. What do we see about Jesus? His humanity and he has his focus on the will of the Father. The second question we have to ask then is, how does this text inform our faith? Kind of like the, the so what? <laughs> Great, interesting story. Good to hear about Jesus. How does this change the way I live as a follower of Christ? For that, it's helpful to see and ask, let me ask you, where do you see yourself in these stories? Each one of the stories has at least one kind of main theme, main takeaway. Just ponder that. Where do you see yourself in these stories? In the, in the first story, we see this overwhelming display of grace. I mean, it is. It's amazing. It's awesome. If you could be anyone or anything in that story, who, who would you want to be? I know my answer. I, I wouldn't want to be one of the servants. That would be kind of cool to see the water. Yeah, I just fill this with water, and I'm giving it to this guy over here, and it's wine. That's, that's amazing. Wouldn't want to be the ceremony guy that tasted it. Um, I wouldn't want to be one of the disciples, so I guess I am, you know, a disciple of Jesus. Uh, but I, in this case, I wouldn't necessarily want to be one of them. I wouldn't want to be the groom, though I think all of us are the groom. All of us can relate to the groom. No, no, that's, that's not, not in comparison to being one of those vessels. That's where my mind goes. My mind goes to, man, I would love to be one of those vessels. Think about that. They are stone jars, right? They're, they're stone and they're just filled with water. Water that's used for old purposes. Water that's tied up with, with legalism, maybe. Rule-based living. Water that's legalistic. Water that you need to keep coming back to. Water that ultimately never satisfies. It cannot complete its purpose. But then the vessels themselves were not physically changed. But after an encounter with Jesus, what was inside of them was completely and utterly transformed filled to the brim with this new grace offered by Jesus. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine being so utterly transformed that you are filled to the brim with the grace that Jesus offers? The master of the ceremony took one taste of the grace and he was astonished. Just one taste of the grace that came out of this vessel. People should be refreshed People were refreshed, in this case. People should be refreshed by us when we're full of the grace that Jesus offers us. 
when it's pouring through us, should be refreshing in our relationships. Could you imagine just for one moment, if you were so full of this grace offered by Jesus, how, how would your life be different? I ask myself this. How would my life be different if this was true in my life? I know, I know I'd stop trying to please other people, people-pleasing, <laughs> right? I'm sure some of you are like, yep, got that. I'd stop trying to work my way out of isolation, feeling alone, and just trying to fill in the cracks with, with work. I'd stop trying to earn love and respect and that's just some of the things for me. I don't know how you would answer that question. How would, you, how would your life be different if you were just filled to the brim, right? One more drop and it's like overflows. Filled to the brim with grace. I'd, I would just be. I'd be the man that Jesus has made me to be and has renewed me to be through my faith in him. I'd be quick to forgive. I'd be full of love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I could be used by Jesus for his kingdom building, not mine. I'd be able to breathe that anxiousness, that panic that's constantly on us. Like, you know, like society demands more and more faster emails. I just wrote you an email. Why didn't you reply two minutes ago? What's wrong with you? <laughs> right? I just constantly, would just, it would just go away. You could just Oh, how I long, I long to be one of those vessels. I want that grace running through me and coming out of me all the time. Instead, I think where I find myself, honestly, is probably in one of the other two stories. Uh, in the second story, we see the struggle with power and control. We see people who are demanding, they're demanding power and control. Who are you, <laughs> the Jewish leaders asked. I want things done my way. Show me a sign. The interesting thing is the backdrop of the New Testament, as you read through the New Testament, there's one thing to keep in mind, and that is the Jews actually are not in control. It's the Roman Empire that's in control. Now, while it's true then in part that, that the Jews have some semblance of control here, what's really happening is that the Romans are in control and the Jews are doing all that they can to maintain the limited power and control that's afforded to them. Remember, they're waiting a Messiah. They're not waiting a Messiah to come and like do away with Judaism. No, they're, they're wanting a conquering king to come and kick out the Roman Empire. That's what the Jews are waiting for. They want their power and control the Jewish leadership is not the assistant Roman Empire, though they think that they are. They're assistant to the Roman Empire. And they want to protect the power and control that they have at all cost. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Man, I am so guilty. I just feel like this is me confessing. Thanks for listening, guys. Trying to be transparent, and hopefully you guys can say, like, yeah, me too, I understand. Does anyone here struggle with power and control? You don't have to raise your hand. You should control yourself. <clears throat> My guess is that some of us will find that our motives are like the Jews in that temple. We want power. <laughs> we want control. And we probably don't even realize it. I've learned that. I just had this. This, this happens often. <laughs> That's another story about me. I'm so sorry. This happens often for me, and um, I, I actually, I hate, for some reason, I hate when cars stop for me. Like, I walk, you know, we're in the downtown Mechanicsburg, you walk a lot. I hate when cars stop for me to cross the street. And the other day this was happening, I was trying to get into the coffee shop, and a car stopped so I could cross, and I was like, man, don't stop. 
And I was like, whoa, <laughs> what's going on inside here, Dan? And I realized I don't want that car to stop because then I'm no longer in control. Because if that car goes by, I can cross when I want to cross on my terms. When he stops, it's like, man, now I have to cross. <laughs> and in Pennsylvania, over-politeness driving culture, oh man, all kinds of confusion. I have this constant need, this constant desire to know that I'm in control. Or at least that I have this illusion of control. And I have to ask myself, what does, what's going on inside my heart? If you can relate to me, let me offer this word of wisdom. You need to learn to examine your motives. In fact, interrogate them. Interrogate your motives and your thoughts. And let me just say, this is not just a suggestion. Do it. Practice this. Before you respond to something or maybe react, um, just pause for a moment and ask yourself, why am I responding this way? What's going on? This struggle that you have with power and control, if any of you are in that camp, let me just say, it affects your relationship with others and it affects your relationship with your heavenly father. If you find yourself in a constant battle with people or, or maybe you're, you're frustrated all the time or stressed for no apparent reason, if you're always correcting people, if you want things done your way because it's the right way, <laughs> Perhaps then you might have an issue with power and control. How can we pray alongside Jesus? Jesus shows us how to pray. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done. How can we do that when we're constantly jockeying for power and control? You can't. You can't ask God for his will and then walk around closed-fisted expecting everything to go your way all the time. Instead of looking at others and demanding, by what sign do you do this? Maybe you should ask yourself, why am I asking by what sign do you do this? Interrogate your thoughts. Chasing power and control leads down a bad path. Nothing good comes from demanding power and control. We need to learn to surrender. Surrender, friends. You will find that the life of grace and surrender to Christ is so much more freeing and you will enjoy your relationships with others and with God so much more. And people will probably enjoy you more too, frankly. The third thing that we see in the, in the, from the third story is this demonstration of superficial belief and worship. Can you relate to these people in, these, in those last few verses? They, they attend Sunday morning worship and they feel really good and then they get in the car and someone cuts them off. <laughs> or... Life takes one of those sideway turns that you just can't predict. The phone rings. That email comes. The doctor steps into the room. Or maybe you just demand a sign. God, if you will just do this, then I will know that you're real. God, if you will, whatever then my life will be so much better. And then when the sign doesn't come, you're left wondering, does God actually love me? Does God care? Is God real? Friends, examine your heart. Don't let your worship of Jesus be completely tied up with your feelings. Your feelings are fickle and can lie to you, or at the very least, they can misguide you. You need to examine your feelings. 
And don't let your faith be tied up with the good gifts that Jesus gives. If you get something good, don't say I'm blessed. Call it a gift. And you are blessed, that's true. But I think that'll help start transforming your understanding and your relationship with Jesus. You're blessed because you're a child of God. And he gives you good gifts along the way. The problem, though, is that once the gifts stop coming, how do you respond? The the people in the third story, they saw the signs. They're like, oh, man, that was amazing. But Jesus knew in their heart the minute he stopped doing those signs, they would fall away. That's why he didn't entrust himself to them. Life is difficult. Unexpected things happen. Joy and sorrow often come hand in hand. When the joy is there, it's so easy to believe. But when sorrow comes, how will you respond? Don't let your faith be only tied up with your experiences. They're important, but Jesus wants your heart. He wants your whole heart, not just your affections. When you have your eyes locked in on Jesus and those storms in life come, you can just keep your eyes focused on him and and just walk on the water. So what can you do? I mean, if you suffer from this like kind of surface level, I think we all fall prey to it. Just go back to Mark 9 with the disciple there who cries out, Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. And that's what Jesus has for us to inform our faith in John 2. We're gonna conclude our time here with um, some, more, some more music. So worship team, if you guys wanna come up. At the end of our worship, let me just say to you that if, if you want some prayer, if you need prayer about any of these areas, any of these things you've talked about, we have a prayer team that'll be here. They would love to just pray with you. They would love to meet you and just, just pray for you. And we see in John 2 that Jesus has something new for you, for each one of you. In order to truly embrace the newness that Jesus offers, you have to let go of the old. Perhaps you have to learn to let go of legalism, the old patterns of trying to earn your way to salvation. Perhaps you need to let go of power and control. Perhaps you have to allow your faith to be wrapped up in who Jesus is, not just the good gifts that he gives you. Perhaps some of you, perhaps some of you today, just this whole concept of relationship with Jesus is new. Friends, Jesus has something for you, for each and every one of you, something new, something fresh. Are you ready to receive it? Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your ministry. And Heavenly Father, I thank you for being our dad. Life is is difficult. Life is challenging. Life can be confusing. And I ask In those moments, Jesus, may you show us the way forward. May you grow our hearts past that inch deep or maybe five inch or six inch. Just let our hearts be purely focused on you in worship. Help us to let go of power and control, Lord, and help us to just be the vessels that you've created us to be, that you've renewed in us with this overwhelming grace inside of us. May you do this work. May you do this work, Jesus. Please, we say, come. Help us to taste the newness that you offer us. Amen.